Chapter 13 of the Story of Gladstone's Life by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Gladstone and Israeli as Rivals. In 1852, began the long parliamentary duel between Gladstone and Disraeli, which ended only when, at the close of the session of 1876, Mr. Disraeli left the House of Commons and took his place, as he had always meant to do sooner or later, in the House of Lords. The debate was on Mr. Disraeli's budget, and it ended in the defeat of the Tory government. Mr. Disraeli never before or after spoke with greater power and sarcasm and bitterness and passion than in his final speech in that debate. It was about two o'clock in the morning when Mr. Gladstone sprang up to reply to him. Gladstone has got his work cut out for him, was the comment of one of the listeners, when Mr. Gladstone rose to his feet. He had his work cut out for him, but he was equal to the work, and he soon made it quite clear that he was going to do it. Many members of the House and listeners in the strangers' galleries thought it hardly possible that at that hour of the morning, and after such a speech as Disraeli's, any further impression could be made even by Mr. Gladstone. But before he had got far into his speech, Everyone felt that Gladstone was making a greater impression than even Disraeli had produced. It has to be borne in mind also that Gladstone's speech was necessarily unprepared, for he replied, point by point, and almost sentence by sentence, to the speech of Mr. Disraeli. It seems to me that from that moment Mr. Gladstone's position in the House of Commons was completely established. Then, as I have said, began the long rivalry of these two great parliamentary athletes. In every important debate, the one man answered the other. Disraeli followed Gladstone, or Gladstone followed Disraeli. It was not unlike the rivalry between Fox and Pitt, for it was a rivalry of temperament and character, as well as of public position and of political principle. Gladstone and Disraeli seemed formed by nature to be antagonists, in character, in temper, in tastes, and in style of speaking the men were utterly unlike each other. One of Gladstone's defects was his tendency to take everything too seriously. One of Disraeli's defects was his tendency to take nothing seriously. Disraeli was strongest in reply when the reply had to consist only of sarcasm. He had a marvelous gift of phrase-making. He could impale a whole policy with an epithet. He could dazzle the House of Commons with a paradox. He could throw ridicule on a political party by two or three happy and reckless adjectives. He described one of Cobden's free-trade meetings in some country place, as an assembly made up of a grotesque and hootie-brastic crew. It is not likely that one of Cobden's meetings was more grotesque or hootie-brastic than any other public meeting anywhere. 
but that did not concern the House of Commons. The description was humorous and effective. It made people laugh, and the adjectives stuck. Disraeli was never happy in statement. When he had to explain a policy, financial or other, he might really be regarded as a very dull speaker. Gladstone was especially brilliant in statement. He could give an exposition of figures the fascination of a romance or a poem. Gladstone never could be, under any possible conditions, a dull speaker. He was no equal of Disraeli's in the gift of sarcasm, in what Disraeli himself called flouts and jeers. But in a reply he swept his antagonist before him with his marvelous eloquence, compounded of reason and passion. I heard nearly all the great speeches made by both the men in that parliamentary duel which lasted for so many years. My own observation and judgment gave the superiority to Mr. Gladstone all through, but I quite admit that Disraeli stood up well to his great opponent and that it was not always easy to award the prize of victory. The two men's voices were curiously unlike. Disraeli had a deep, low, powerful voice, heard everywhere throughout the house, but having little variety or music in it. Gladstone's voice was tuned to a higher note, was penetrating, resonant, liquid, and full of an exquisite modulation and music which gave new shades of meaning to every emphasized word. The ways of the men were, in almost every respect, curiously unlike. Gladstone was always eager for conversation. He loved to talk to anybody about anything. Disraeli, even among his most intimate friends, was given to frequent fits of absolute and gloomy silence. Gladstone, after his earlier parliamentary days, became almost entirely indifferent to dress. Disraeli always turned out in the newest fashion, and down to his latest years went in the get-up of a young man about town. Not less different were the characters and temperaments of the two men. Gladstone changed his political opinions many times during his long parliamentary career but he changed his opinions only in deference to the force of a growing conviction and to the recognition of facts and conditions which he could no longer conscientiously dispute. Nobody probably ever knew what Mr. Disraeli's real opinions were upon any political question or whether he had any real opinions at all. Gladstone began as a Tory and gradually became changed into a radical. Disraeli began as an extreme radical under the patronage of Daniel O'Connell and changed into a Tory. But everybody knew that Gladstone was at first a sincere Tory and at last a sincere radical. Nobody knew or indeed cared whether Disraeli ever was either a sincere radical or a sincere Tory, it is not, perhaps, an unreasonable thing to assume that Disraeli soon began to feel that there was no opening for him on the liberal benches of the House of Commons. 
he was determined to get on. He knew that he had the capacity for success. He was not in the least abashed by session after session of absolute failure in Parliament, but he probably began to see that he must choose his ground. On the Liberal side were men like Palmerston, Lord John Russell, Gladstone, Cobden, and Bright. On the Tory side, there were respectable country gentlemen. Since the removal of Lord Stanley to the upper house, there was not a single man on the Tory benches who could for a moment be compared as regards eloquence and intellect with Disraeli. Given a perfectly open mind, it is not difficult to see how an ambitious man would make his choice. The choice was made accordingly, and Mr. Disraeli soon became the only possible leader of the Tory party in the House of Commons. Now that it is all passed into history and has become merely a question of what might be called artistic interest, I think we may be thankful that Disraeli made up his mind to cast in his lot with the Tory party. We have at all events the advantage from it that he was thus thrown into permanent rivalry with Gladstone, and that we have the long succession of parliamentary duels to read of and to remember. On more than one occasion, too, Disraeli was able, according to his own phrase, to educate his party up to some really liberal measure. In that way, he was able to serve the country, although most likely his immediate idea was to keep his party still in office. But I confess that for myself, I am not thinking so much of this fact when I express my thankfulness that Disraeli joined the Tories. The liberal measures would have come in due course of time, whether Disraeli helped them or tried to hinder them. But I cannot estimate how much the parliamentary history of recent times would have lost an interest if Gladstone and Disraeli had been on the same side in politics. What would become of the chief interest and fascination of the Iliad if Achilles and Hector had been allies and companions in arms? Gladstone was needed to bring out all that was keenest and brightest in the parliamentary eloquence of Disraeli. Gladstone, on the other hand, would have been literally thrown away on any Tory antagonist beneath the level of Disraeli. Never since Disraeli left the House of Commons has Gladstone found a Tory antagonist worth his crossing swords with. Among other differences between the two men were differences in education. Disraeli never had anything like the classical training of Gladstone. The mind of Gladstone was steeped in the glorious literature of Greece and of Rome, about which Disraeli knew little or nothing. Disraeli could not read Latin or Greek. He could not speak French. In a famous speech of his delivered in the House of Commons at the height of his fame, and in opposition to a measure of Gladstone's, Disraeli made it plain that he thought the meaning of university was a place where everything was taught, a place of universal instruction. In another famous speech, he described John Henry Newman's Apologia Provita Sua, as an apology for Newman's life. When the Congress of Berlin sat in 1878 and was presided over by Prince Bismarck, 
the great Prussian statesman opened and conducted the business in English. Disraeli, accompanied by Lord Salisbury, represented England at the Congress, and it was at first supposed that Bismarck spoke English simply as a mark of compliment to England. But Bismarck kindly spoke English because it had been made known to him that Disraeli could not speak French. It must be admitted, however, that all this tells to a certain extent in Disraeli's favor. Among the contrasts between the lives and ways of the two great rivals must be noticed the contrast between the conditions under which they started into public life. Everything that care, culture, and money could do had been done for Gladstone. His father had started him in public life with an ample fortune. Disraeli was the son of a very clever and distinguished literary man who was successful enough as a sort of genre artist with the pen, but who could not give his son much of a launch in life. Disraeli got but a very scrambling education and was for some time set to work in a lawyer's office. His early extravagances got him into much trouble at the outset of his career. He had luxurious Oriental tastes and fancies, and besides, he was determined to get into the House of Commons at any cost, and the expenses of election in those days would seem almost incredible to our more modest times. It was no very uncommon thing for a man to spend £100,000 in contesting a county. Disraeli at first contested only boroughs, but even a borough contest meant huge expenditure. He had therefore nothing like the secure and unharassed entrance into politics, which was the good fortune of his great rival. Another difference between the two men was found in their attitudes toward general culture. Gladstone had a positive passion for studying everything, for knowing something about everything. He was unwilling to let any subject elude his grasp. He had tastes the most varied and all but universal. He loved pictures and statues and architecture and old china and metals and bric-a-brac of every kind, and he had made himself acquainted with the history of all these subjects. There was almost nothing about which he could not talk with fluency and with the keenest interest. He had a thirst for information, and it was a pleasure to him to get out of every man all that the man could tell him about his own particular subject. Although a great and indeed a tremendous talker, Gladstone was not one of the men who insist upon having all the talk to themselves. His thirst for information would in any case have prevented him from being a talker only. He knew that every man and woman he met had something to tell him, and he gave everyone ample opportunity. Disraeli possessed no such ubiquitous tastes and no such varied knowledge. He had traveled more than Gladstone ever traveled, but he brought back little from his wanderings. His life, indeed, ran in a narrow groove. Political ambition was his idol, and he lived in its worship. A writer of brilliant novels, he could hardly be called in the highest sense a literary man, his novels were undoubtedly brilliant, 
and brought him in every way a great success. He was probably the only English author who ever compelled his English public to read political novels. But he had no particular affection for literature or for literary men. Not very long after Thackeray's death, Disraeli satirized the author of Vanity Fair most bitterly and recklessly in the person of one of his characters in Endymion. Disraeli thoroughly enjoyed the life of the House of Commons for its own sake. Gladstone probably enjoyed it most for the opportunities which it gave him of asserting his principles and pushing forward his reforms. Of both men, it is only fair to say that during their long political struggle, not one breath of scandal touched their public or private life. On one or two occasions, when an accusation was made against either man of having shown a spirit of favoritism in some public appointment, the charge was easily disproved, and indeed would not have been seriously believed in by many people in any case. Disraeli was once, while in office, charged with having given a certain small appointment to a political supporter. He was able to prove at once, first, that the recipient of the place was the man best qualified for its work, and next, that the recipient of the place had been a steady political opponent of Disraeli and the Tory party. It is satisfactory to know that in the higher walks of English political life, the atmosphere has for many years been pure and untainted. The days of Bolingbroke and Walpole and the Godolphins had long passed away, and even the hard-drinking, reckless, gambling temper of the times of Fox and Pitt were totally unknown to the principal associates of Disraeli and Gladstone. In every way, therefore, these great rivals were worthy of the rivalry, I have often thought that of late years Mr. Gladstone in the House of Commons must have sadly missed his old antagonist. Gladstone had a profound sympathy with Italy, a strong passion for Italy, very much like the passion which Byron had for Greece. He loved the language, the literature, the country, and the people. He spoke Italian with marvelous fluency and accuracy. An eminent Italian once told me that Gladstone, when speaking Italian, fell quite naturally into the very movements and gestures of an Italian. If Gladstone, he said, were to address the representative chamber in Rome, everyone present would take him for an Italian. Only it was possible that the Tuscan might think he was a Roman, and that the Roman might set him down as a Tuscan. Whenever he needed rest, he almost always sought it under the skies of Italy. When, at a later period of his career, he visited the Ionian Islands as Lord High Commissioner on behalf of the Sovereign of England, he addressed all the public assemblies in the islands and on the mainland, in Athens and elsewhere, in Italian. The pronunciation of Greek, which is taught at the English universities, would have rendered it almost impossible for an English scholar however well acquainted with the literary language of Greece, to make himself intelligible to a modern Greek audience. Gladstone spoke French with perfect fluency, but with a very marked accent. Indeed, his speeches in the House of Commons were always delivered with an accent which told unmistakably of the North Country. 
From his forebears, he got the tones of Scotland, and then Lancashire has a distinct accent all to herself. I have a strong impression that some at least of the influence of Gladstone's finest speeches in the House of Commons would have been a little marred if they had been delivered in the commonplace accent of West End London society. End of chapter 13